Welcome to the Be Daring Life podcast, where life and leadership begins. We're your hosts, Hudson and Rachel. And today we are joined by Mr. David Mike, a guy with a crazy, unbelievable story, which we're going to hear some of today. Thank you so much for joining us on our show today, David. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. We're going to talk about how one little decision can totally change your life. But also, if you mess up, you don't have to be defined by your past. 30 years ago, as a young kid, David began serving a sentence at Leavenworth Military Prison. But we'll get to that in a minute. Mr. Mike, can you tell us a little bit about your childhood? Sure. Um, Growing up, I was a military kid. My dad was Air Force. And so you can imagine that I wanted to be in the military just like him and uh, my grandparents before him. I had a long history of service members in my family and I wanted to serve my country. And so I, from my earliest memory, just that's what I wanted to do. So I remember when I got to high school, I had a choice between learning computers or taking junior ROTC. And I was like, I want to do the ROTC thing because that's going to help me uh, get into the military with a little bit of a higher rank and, and kind of get my like feet in the water a little bit. Um, so that was basically my childhood, just moving around, meet new people, telling stories about the places I lived and the things I've done. Um, and then uh, high school was just, for me, a preparatory to get into the military. So you were all about the military. Yes. You enlisted at 17, right? Before you even graduated? Yes. My parents had to sign, sign me in because uh, I was too young to sign. You know, you have to be 18. So they signed a paper saying it was okay. <laughs> Did they try to talk you out of it? No. Um, my parents were okay with me joining the military. Now, my dad wasn't super excited about me going in the Army because he was Air Force, but he said it was okay uh, for me to, you know, go for my dream. So. But then you said things began to change for you your senior year in high school. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I think I was making some decisions that uh, probably weren't the way I was raised. And so there was some disconnection between my family and me, and I just started to isolate. Um, So basically, I just kind of became more introverted and, and not real connected with my family. And there was a little bit of tension between my father being in the military and kind of wanting structure and things to go a certain way. And I was trying to branch out and be my own person and be an individual. And I think that that led me to make some decisions that just probably weren't good for me. I think a lot of teenagers go through that though. Yes. From in my experience. (laughs) And now that I'm an adult and I have children, I can see what my parents were trying to do. But at the time it just seemed like I was being oppressed and, you know, uh, it was just too much structure for me. (laughs) They're trying to separate but they're not, their brains are not fully developed. Right. So they really aren't making the best decisions. So you graduated from basic training and you were stationed in Louisiana and you started getting into the party scene with your friends and someone offered you a pill. So what went through your mind when that happened? Did the thought pop through your head? Maybe this is something I shouldn't do. Well, the reason why I was going out with my friends to the clubs and, and, the party scene was because I was dating a girl in high school. And when I moved to Louisiana, I I was close to her, but uh, the distance was too much for our relationship and she ended up dumping me. So uh, I took that pretty hard and 
was pretty depressed. And when I went out with my friends, uh, I was in a state of, I wasn't thinking clearly and I literally don't even know how or why it happened, but this pill appeared in my hand and I took it. So it wasn't, there was no thought process whatsoever other than, Hey, this is going to make you feel better. And I just took it. So I, I can't really say I was thinking, yes, I should do this or no, I shouldn't. I just did it. Is the club scene a pretty common activity for enlisted guys? I'm going to have to say yes when a 17, 18, 19-year-old person leaves home and they go out and they're free to do whatever they want. A lot of times they take liberty with that. And so the nightclub is just a place where you can hang out at night and do whatever. So yes, I would say it's it's pretty common. So uh, drugs got hold of you pretty quick. And then you started selling them so you could fund your habit. Why do you think you so easily went down that path so quickly to like, from just not even using them to now I'm dealing them? So the dealer that I was buying my drugs from noticed that I was coming to her with a larger sums of money than just for myself because my friends were like, wow, you, you could get it pretty quickly. So they would give me all their money and then I would go get it and then take it back to them. And so she felt like she would, you know, Hey, you're, you're kind of able to move this around pretty quickly. So I'm going to start using you as kind of like a sub seller. So she was giving me free drugs for the amount that I was selling to all these other people. So initially it wasn't really, I wasn't trying to sell drugs. I was just like, give me your money and I'll go get it. But then I started to see how much money was coming in. And so I started to partner with her and it just kind of snowballed from there. I took one trip to Houston, Texas to meet her dealer. And then after that, it was, it just kind of ramped up. So like before you knew it, you were way in deep. Yeah, definitely. So you were trying all kinds of drugs. You said you'd even take them if you didn't know how to take them. Like, oh, let me try this one. Did you ever think this is going to kill me? Maybe I should stop. No, I never had that thought. I, when I first started taking the drugs, I think, what happened was I was taking so many of them so frequently that my tolerance level started to lower. And so I needed to take more in order to get as high as I did the first time. And it just kept going and going. So I was mostly just chasing a high that I could never fully reach. Was there anything that would have kept you from going down that path? So in my state of depression, I think if I had reached out to somebody, uh, you know, a counselor, uh, maybe my platoon sergeant or somebody uh, above me, a pastor, my parents, if I had just reached out and just said, I'm, I'm not feeling good about myself and, and what had happened, there's a possibility that somebody could have reached me and, and kind of pulled me in uh, to a different path than the path I took. So I would say, um, yes, I think just reaching out and, and telling somebody about my feelings, which is really hard for guys, by the way. Um, guys don't really yeah. like to talk about their feelings. They just kind of want to like internalize it and just deal with it. But it was just too much for me to deal with it uh, in, in that moment. So the thought never crossed your mind. There might be a different way to deal with this. You just wanted to get rid of the pain. No, I, yeah, my friends were like, man, you are, you are super depressed. Just come out with us and, you know, you know, we'll just have a good time. And I didn't really know that that night would lead to what it led to. I was just hanging out with the guys that I was in my unit with. So. So in your, in your book that we're going to talk about in a little bit, um, you had so many close calls with death and the police. Did you? Yes, I did. Did you think I'm invincible or did you think 
wow, somebody must be looking out for me? Or did you even really comprehend what was going on? I would say that I wasn't really thinking about life or death, the police getting caught. I was just literally on the run. Um, I did run away from the army um, after I was arrested the first time. And so I was just literally trying to numb my brain. And I think that all of the things that I went through, I didn't think of anything other than just get to the next day. Did you ever feel like you had no control and you were trapped? I did. There were several times when I was uh, reflecting on where I had ended up and it, it was, I didn't feel good about it. And I think those were some lucid moments that I had. So, uh, but it only took another pill or an, another drug and that thought would just disappear. Did you ever think about suicide? I did. Um, I don't think I would ever act on it. Um, but there was one point where I told everybody that if I ever got caught, um, that I would either take all of the drugs that I had on me and and go out that way or I would attempt suicide by cop in order not to go to jail which is where you basically pull out a gun aim it at the cops so that they shoot you right were there any thoughts about what drug dealing was doing to others leading them into addiction no I never thought about the other side of that while it was going on but I can tell you that later on I had a lot of uh, guilt and shame about knowing that the people that I sold drugs too, could have maybe never made it, uh, you know, out of that lifestyle or maybe not, not even have made it uh, through life. And so it, it's not a good feeling to have dealt with that guilt and shame of knowing that I was a drug dealer and that I did hurt other people. Right. So you, you went AWOL, you're running from the military police um, and you were caught and then you escaped a couple of times, right? Is that right? Yes. Oh, I was good. The first time I got caught, uh, they told me that if I helped them out, uh, they would let me back on my unit and I would basically be an informant. And I was like, yeah, that's probably a good idea because I'd never been in trouble before. So I thought I would help them out. But the, as soon as I got back to my barracks, I just forgot about all that and just took off. Right. And then your uh, the guys in your unit went to war. So you were gone. So they charged you with desertion. Yes. Which is a really big deal. It's a very big deal. <laughs> And you were a pretty big dealer. So you were facing a maximum sentence of 36 years, right? It was 38, I believe. I might have, yeah, I think it was 38 years. I may have said 36. On, oh, I said 36 on my blog, but then when I added the math up and put it in the book, it was 38. Yeah, that's a long time. It is a long time. So you ended up in Leavenworth, uh, a military prison. And even after being there a while, you said that you thought you had changed, but looking back, uh, you were still very focused on yourself and still not seeing what your part was, I guess. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. So, and then you spoke about the moment when things turned around for you and it just happened like in an instant. Why do you think th that time it was different? <clears throat> So when I was in Leavenworth, I worked in a dining facility, basically a mess hall restaurant for the inmates. And I had a guy walk up to me and hand me a hit of LSD. And I don't know if he was giving it to me or just showing it to me, but I took it. And somehow we made it to the day without being caught. When I got back to my barracks, which is um, basically where I was living at that time, I had moved out of a cell into a barracks type arrangement. I was waiting for a letter for my father for my first parole board 
um, which would have meant I was going to be able to get out early if I was approved. And this letter um, that was sitting on my bed or my desk, I can't remember if it was my bed or my desk, that night, the same night that I relapsed and took drugs after being clean for a year and a half, I opened it up, I read it, and in there it said that he would stake his life, his reputation, his job on the fact that I would never do drugs again. So I felt like God orchestrated that moment to show me that the actions that I was taking, the selfish actions that I was taking were hurting other people. And if my dad actually had to put his life on the line for me, then I would have just taken it away in that one moment. So I decided that instead of hurting people, the people that love me and that cared for me and um, would put those kind of stakes up for me, that I would, uh, I needed to stop what I was doing and change my ways. And I swore off drugs on that day and I've never used again. Have you ever been tempted? There was probably some moments in my life where I've had some temptation, but I would have to say that I, I, there was nothing inside of me that was willing to go back to prison or go back to that life or be the person that I was during the time that I was on those drugs. I just, I have definitely no desire to go back to that life. Right. I've, I've heard both sides. Like some people say there's, I'm always wanting it all the time. And then other people say, you know, just cold turkey, it just went away. So I've, I'm, I've always been interested, like why some people get that and some people don't. And for me, it was because I knew that I had disgraced my family, God, my country, and I definitely had made a huge mess out of my life and I needed to turn around. And I feel like once again, because of how all those events played out on that one specific day that God was speaking to me and telling me, you are screwing up. You need to quit. You need to move on with your life and let's do something else with it. Right. It's, it's almost like God was giving you chances after chance after chance. Like eventually he's not going to give you a chance, right? Eventually, exactly. Oh, well, he might give you the chance, but you're going to be so hard that you won't take it. Either that or may not have made it out alive. Right. I looked up uh, this statistic today. It said in 2017, 19.7 million Americans age 12 and over battled substance abuse disorder. That's crazy. That's a lot of people. Yeah. So drugs are not just a lower class issue like they used to be, especially now uh, with opioids. Um, we have done foster parenting and a huge number of of the babies we've gotten in this area are be- because their parents are addicted to opioids. Um, That's terrible. So do you have any idea what percentage of people who, who are that deeply involved in drugs are able to get free like you did? Um, I don't know what that statistic is, but I do feel like people who succumb to addiction generally don't make it out. Um, it's really hard to uh, come out of that. And it's a sickness that a lot of people don't understand. It's very selfish and you will do anything for the high, even if it comes to stealing, hurting uh, the people that you love. And it takes something serious like hospitalization, institutionalization or death to come out of addiction um, most of the time, or a super strong support network where people are there for you and can help you see that the actions that you're taking are hurting other people. So, or, or a miracle, right? Yes. Um, and all of those would probably be a miracle. What was the hardest part about being locked up in your mind? 
the boredom. And I know that that's kind of a crazy thing to say. They wasn't really, they had a lot of stuff for us to do to keep us busy. I had to work and all that. But when you're locked in a cell and you can't get out, the thoughts in your mind play tricks on you. And all I could think about was not being able to get out of there. Um, I was suffering from anxiety attacks, panic attacks, and I felt like I was literally losing my mind. The noise level was extreme. Uh, when I was locked in the cell, usually later into the evening, the people would just, there was about, I think 500 people in the cell block that I was in and the noise was just all night long. And I, it, it, I feel like I don't want to, I hate to use the word PTSD, but I do feel like I've, uh, have some issues because of that with noise and it kind of takes me back there a little bit. So I would say just the noise level and the boredom and the isolation, it, it was really hard to deal with. As we've been going through this social isolation experiment that we're on, um, I've really seen the need for people to have connections and relationships and how much this is really bothering people that they can't go out and be with people. And that's something that you, they deprive you of in prison. Your yes, the connections and the relationships. What did you learn about, about that, about relationships while you were in there? I do know that in prison, relationships aren't something you really want to seek out because most of the times the people there are not are really out for themselves. And they used to say something, it was a phrase that I learned, do your own time because the people that you are serving time with are not going to help you get anywhere in life. Other, They just want to keep you there. So I really looked for relationships um, through pen pals, uh, through my family, through my old youth group uh, in Germany, and also luckily for me, my parents were stationed three hours away and were able to start visiting uh, during the last year of my confinement. And so I, I had that connection to the outside, which was major for me. Yeah. Speak a little bit about the importance of having family who believed in you and they loved you even after you kept making a bad decision after bad decision. Could you speak hope to parents who are currently going through a difficult season like this with their kid? During the time that I was on the run, I, I kind of kept away from my family. I did call periodically, let them know I was still alive, but I was worried about my father being in the military and knowing my whereabouts because the fact that he, he if he knew where I was, he would actually get in trouble for knowing where I was because I was a military fugitive. Um, but they never gave up on me. And when I was in prison, they would constantly send me letters and, and just whatever I had asked for, they would send it. So they never gave up on me. And I think that was a, that played a huge part in my recovery because I didn't want to let them down. And I, it's, it, it is difficult to say that a child will come out of addiction or out of prison okay because of the parental relationship, but it, does, it did play a factor in, in, um, in my experience. Yeah, your parents, your parents did amazing. I, I can imagine a lot of parents would be like, well, you dug that or made that bed. Right. You got to lie in it. Yeah, I'm not going to help you. Tough love. You've embarrassed me. Yeah, yeah. I'm on a lot of parenting teenager groups on Facebook because that's our our um, focus and that's who we try to help. And I see so many parents whose kids are smoking weed and the parents don't want them to. And then I also see a lot of parents who think it's no big deal for their teens to be doing that. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I'm going to have a little bit of a bias uh, because I know that mind-altering substances have caused me nothing but uh, pain, heartache, shame, and yeah, it's so I I feel like having 
all your mental faculties would be something that you would want for your child and right. that children would want for themselves. Um, you know, I read a book called um, Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters, and I learned something that people between certain ages make impulse decisions. And if you think about when people get into trouble in their lives, it's usually within that range, um, which right. would have been in the range that I was running a little crazy. And so you really have to be on top of your kids and kind of paying attention and be active in their lives. Uh, luckily, I'm blessed with a with an amazing wife who is so invested in our children uh, that they can talk to her about anything. I feel like they can talk to me too, but she definitely has a, a little bit more of that corner than I do. But I think being involved in your kid's life and paying attention and letting them know you see what they're doing and, uh, you know, letting them know, letting them know how you feel about what they're doing without condemning them could be a, a possible way to, to keep that relationship um, from breaking apart. Like the one, like I left my parents, I was, I was so excited to get out of, away from them because I feel like uh, the oppression was there. But I know now that what they were trying to do is just make sure that they were steering me in the right direction so that. Um, I wouldn't make the decisions that I did. Right. Yeah. We, the, it's the prefrontal -front cortex is not developed until they're 25. I think it is. Right. So that at our house, we always, we always have a joke about that. Like uh, <laughs> they're not, their prefrontal cortex isn't developed yet. That's all right. <laughs> right. <laughs> How long have you been talking about your story publicly? Um, I think from the day I got out of prison, you know, and, and I talk about a lot of that in the book, uh, trying to get a job. I had to put it down. So, I, I mean, people have always known that I, I had served time. Uh, I wasn't proud of it, but it was just out there. And I wasn't really afraid to talk about it too much because, like I mentioned before, moving around as a kid, I've always told stories about where I've lived and what I've done. And every once in a while, that would come up in conversation and people were like, oh, my gosh, you are in prison. And I was like, yeah. And I kind of would tell them a little bit about it. And they said I, people would always tell me, you should write a book. But I didn't really feel like I could or knew how. And I do feel like God was kind of keeping me from doing it until I reached a certain maturity level. Because there is there is a huge responsibility um, with releasing a story like mine and putting it out there in the open for people to read. Because it's just not a glorified drug dealer story. There's, there's a redemption at the end. And, and I don't know that I could have fully described that. Um, in my youth. So it took me about 25 years to actually put the story out into the public arena. I saw uh, the Toby Mac quote on your page where it said, don't be afraid to share your story. It could be the key to unlock someone else's prison. Uh, people are drawn to stories. And uh, I know that all the struggle and all the bad stuff that you went through has and is going to help others going through similar circumstances. So you've taken your story and you've written a book about it. And what is your goal exactly with the book? Originally, the goal with the book was to just kind of let people know what I had been through and, and how I was able to overcome the guilt and shame of my past through the forgiveness that God gives us through um, Jesus dying on the cross and raising from the dead. At this time, you know, it's coming up on Easter, but that um, raising from the dead and taking all of our sins away. 2000 years before we even committed them, it was a mind blowing thing that I, I discovered um, after reading a book myself in prison. I read this book and, it, and when, I, when I heard that and read it, I, I know I grew up hearing all this before, but it never really sunk in. And all of a sudden I started to see that everywhere. And so I really want to share that same experience that I had of discovering that no matter what I've done, no matter how dirty, dark, 
or messed up my passes, God doesn't even see it anymore because he's completely forgiven me. And I want to share that with other people. So, I mean, I know there's people out there struggling and, and, and dealing with things that they've done in their past and you don't have, you don't have to live with that anymore. The other thing I would really like to do is I'm trying to get the book into as many inmates hands as possible. And it's, a, and so I, I ship books to inmates uh, upon request when people say, Hey, I've got a brother, I got a friend or somebody in prison. And they, I think that your story could help them. So I, I do ship copies of my books to them. I have a little bit of money set aside for that. So that's your ministry. Yes. That. And what do you do now? I actually teach cosmetology. So I teach people how to cut hair. So I bet that's, I bet you have lots of, you tell lots of stories while people are sitting in your chair too. Yes. And I, I teach to probably about a hundred students a year. And so it's really cool to kind of be able to share my story with them. That's amazing. Is there anything you would like to add? Oh, let's see. Uh, what could I say that would, that would impact people? I, it's really hard to be any more impactful than to say that you really don't have to be defined by your past, that God's forgiveness is real and it, it takes everything away. Um, you still may struggle in life, but you have a heavenly father that loves you no matter what you've done, what you're going to do or where you're at now. And if you could grasp that concept and, and take that in and believe it, uh, it is definitely freeing and it can release those chains. Awesome. Where can we find you? Let's see. My social media is at Dilemma Mike, D-I-L-E-M-M-A-M-I-K-E. I also have a website and it's DilemmaMike.com. My book is on Amazon and I would suggest typing Dishonor and then David Mike. And that's the easiest way to find my book. You got five stars on Amazon. I do. I have a... a a lot of people who have supported me and read my book and then went and gave reviews. It's, uh, it's, it's, I have a really great community that has come together to help me get my message out. Uh, and I, I want to say my message, it's God's message, uh, taking my mess and turning it into his message. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing with us today. Check out David's book, Dishonor. It goes into greater detail about his story and his thought processes, what life was like in prison, how he got out what he had to face trying to find work with a record. He's a great writer. I didn't want to stop reading it. I was up in the middle of the night, sitting in the dark, reading his story. If you know anyone that's in prison or struggling with drug addiction or has a loved one in one of those situations, or you just want to read a great story of redemption, I highly recommend his book. We'll include a link in our show notes if you want to buy it off of there. If you like our content, please visit our website at BeDaringLife.com or our Facebook page at BeDaringLife. We would love it if you would subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. The more reviews we have, the more visible our podcast is and the easier it is for people to find us and the great community that we are building together. 